Don't want to work forever? Once you can cover your living expenses with passive income, your day job becomes optional and you reach financial independence. You then have complete control over your time, your money, and your life in general. Spark Rental founders Denny Suplee and Brian Davis, me, are here to help you build rental income, ditch your day job, and do what matters most to you. So on that note, let's jump into today's episode, which, like all of our episodes, was recorded live. Welcome. Happy Tuesday. Brian Davis and Denny Sipley here from Spark Rental, and we are super excited to have Levi Kushner with us today from Stable Holdings. Levi, welcome. Thank you. Uh, lovely to be here. Well, you know, nice we're gonna, to have you. <laughs> that's right. As always, we keep these conversations super casual and relaxed. So, you know, as you guys join us in the audience, you know, feel free to fire questions in the chat uh, for, for Levi, for us. Uh, we want to keep this as much of a dialogue as possible on how to diatribe. Um, so, you know, on that note, let's dive right in. Uh, Levi, we understand that your first real estate deal was back when you were 18, 19, uh, and you did some some creative financing with us with it. So walk us through exactly how that worked, uh, because it's definitely more advanced than the typical teenager is doing with real estate deals. Um, I was 19, yeah. Um, I was in the uh, mortgage business. I was uh, still single at the time. One of the people I worked for in the industry was familiar with an area in Long Island called Elmont, New York, right near the Belmont racetrack, which is now the UBS arena. Anyways, I saved up some money. I was selling some loans at the time. I, uh, quite good at it and really wasn't sure what to do with it. Anyways, we got into this conversation and he, he actually owned two rental properties at the time in Elmont. Um, so he told me to check out this area. So we went out there on a weekend and, uh, we, we got in touch with this REO broker and we found this three family home. So, uh, you know, I found the three family home and it really was funny looking home. It was a, it was like a, a home that had a, it was like a giant hole in the middle with a, almost looked like a, uh, a growth coming out of the side. It was, just, <laughs> it was for sale and it was for 200 and I think $75,000 at the time. And we settled on 250. Um, and there were two tenants at the time. Oh, wow. And my initial plan was to buy, fix and sell the property. So I still remember to this day, I was looking for some money to buy the home. So I had at the time $35,000, but I needed an additional 50 after closing costs and all these different things. And I, uh, I found a, uh, an uncle of mine and I sold him the deal wow. and I told him I would give him 12% on his money. I uh, just out of curiosity or curiosity, how, how, I mean, you were pretty young. So how, how did you know how to orchestrate all so of this? I was this? in the mortgage business at this time for about a year and a half. I was getting an young. idea of the numbers. I wasn't completely blind on this. I had an idea. All right. I also knew how to comp out property at this time. And additionally, I knew what rents were in the area. So I did get an appraisal on the property and I knew what each unit would rent for. And my thinking was that I would definitely, once I had all three of these units full, I'd be able to flip this property, make all the money back, pay back my uncle with his return. And I still remember I found this contractor. He was a part-time contractor, part-time fireman. His name was Sal. <laughs> and, uh, 
Sal met me at the property and he gave me a quote. I think it was like a $25,000 to put in the kitchen, redo some grout and, you know, odds and ends. And there was a landscaper across the street who I called over and do some work for us. Sure enough, we redo the house. Oh, one of the best stories yet, the hard money guys on this deal. My first hard money loan charged me six and 14, six points and 14%. Wow. Yeah. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. This was my first hard money loan. I was just so excited to get approved. I didn't even know. Listen, I didn't even go to the hard money lender direct. I used a hard money broker. <laughs> <laughs> so the hard money guy charged me two points on top of the hard money lenders who charged me four. So, I mean, whew, talk about expensive money. <clears throat> so uh, here I am, I get this loan. I buy the property, it's, it's renovated, and I stick a sign in the ground, we're going to sell it. Goes to market, nothing doing. No one wanted to buy this home. And I thought, this is going to be a great property. I mean, who wouldn't want to buy a home, live in it, and then be able to make it additional income? No one wants it. House hacking. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I started freaking out. What am I going to do? And um, how... How long could I survive these ridiculous hard money payments? Right. It was like, you know, like $5 million a month payments for this $250,000 home. It was absurd. Right. And you owed money on the down payment too, because you borrowed the down payment from your uncle at 12%. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then I stopped and I was like, you know what? I'm in the mortgage business. I changed plans immediately. I found tenants for each unit. Boom, boom, boom. Got units fully rented out and I refinanced the property and I cashed out on the property and albeit I wasn't able to get all of my money out. I was able to pull out all of my uncle's money. Right. So you could get that I got him cross all his off money of your out, neck. Yeah. Which was a huge, huge, uh, pressure off. And one of the greatest things I learned from then on was my investors always came first. Yeah. Always family, not family, didn't matter. His money came out first. I paid him back and started collecting rent and I still gave him his rate of return. One of the tenants moved into the property on a rent to own basis. And what I did with her was she had bad credit, but she agreed that every month she would pay me an additional 500 bucks of rent to go towards the down payment. And at the end of two years, once if her credit was better, those five hundred dollars would be the down payment. So it'd be an additional uh, ten grand, roughly, or you know, fourteen thousand dollars, which would be her down payment. And if not, it would just be towards rent. We agreed on a purchase price. I believe it was four fifty at the time in two years. And if and if her credit was good enough, she would close. And um, sure enough, at the end of two years, her credit was good enough. And it worked out, believe it or not, it That's worked crazy. out. This rent to own story happened to work. The tenant uh, got her mortgage. The money actually, you know, we documented it correctly. You know, when you go for a mortgage and people do rent to own, they don't, they just give the extra money. They don't, but we documented each $500 properly so that she was able to show it to the, to the underwriters properly to show that it was used towards a down payment. And she closed on the home today this same home is worth in the 700s. I'm sure. Um, 
so she did well for herself and yes. uh, great family i still remember them very well and uh that was my first property so how, how did you know how to structure a lease purchase deal i mean did you research it or you just rent to own so by that time i must have had the property for so i tried selling it for a few months but remember by that point i already picked up my third property because what happened was is we bought it put it on the market but then what i wasn't just sitting around not doing anything else i wanted to get going so the same realtor who sold us that house approached us and said hey I have another property here in Valley Stream, which is neighboring Elmont. That was our second property. And then he brought us a third property, uh, I believe also in Elmont. So we started getting into, and as we started doing it, I started getting much more involved in the business. Remember my first mentor at the time was this guy named um, Josh Cantwell. I started watching tons of YouTube videos of this guy. I remember something about, I must've saw something about lease to own, rent to own. And uh, I was like, that sounds like a cool idea. So by this time, you know, it, this was like the first month I put the house on the market. It just came to my head. We were already into this like six, seven months mm-hmm. where, and I was already in the mortgage business for about a year and a half. The mortgage business gave me a huge, huge leg up in the industry. I would say even more than a real estate agent, being in the mortgage industry as a loan officer, teaches you so much about this business, knowing numbers, knowing the financing, it, you, you, it encapsulates so much of this industry besides all the, the crap that mortgage, uh, you know, loan officers go through just to close a deal. Besides all that, the hardship that it teaches you to go through the practicality, the skills you learn in the mortgage industry teach you so much about, you know, especially in the residential uh, business. Yeah, I, I started Brian knows all about in, that. Yep. Yeah, I, I started uh, as a loan officer as well in, as in, in my career in real estate. And it teaches you how to think like a lender, uh, which later helps you go out and get financing uh, as an investor. Uh, so yeah, being, being able to think like a lender uh, really gives, it does give you a leg up. Uh, as a real estate investor. So now, you know, you, you have invested, you flipped hundreds of houses in the intervening years. So tell us about how you scaled up from that, that very first deal that you, you did the creative financing on and, and then you refinanced and did the, the lease, lease purchase deal. So how did, how did you scale from that, that one deal up to where you are today, you know, having flipped hundreds of houses, uh, you know, a successful real estate developer, uh, walk us through some of you know the, that early scaling and, and what has changed in your strategy over the years. So what happens is you do your first deal. So back then, this is about eight years ago, around that, more, REO agents were still like a thing. They would come over to you with a deal. Then you started getting a little bit more comfortable. They'd start bringing you more deals. You know what? We got to start finding our own deals. We can't rely on these agents because, you know, they started building like one or two relationships or they started getting two, just sending lists out to groups of people and it was just impossible to get deals. So you start going to auctions. All right, auctions started working. Go to auctions. I remember we used to go to auctions (laughs) and uh, you could basically sit wherever you wanted. We used to go to auctions and I could go to the front, I'd go to the back, the auctioneer knew my name. You go to auction, basically get one, 
two properties a month, no problem. All of a sudden, auction started becoming packed. Standing room only. Not only standing room, it, it got so full, you'd have to wait outside the auction house. <laughs> so then that's when we started getting into direct to seller marketing. And through each of these levels, we started acquiring more deals. So up until 2019, I was doing this with a partner. At that year, we were doing several homes a month. At 2019, we split. And that's when I formed stable holdings on my own. And that's when I went full gear in direct to seller marketing and really, really put in all, all systems ago in setting up a, you know, an acquisitions team, a dispositions team. So basically the way we get our deals now is we, we, I purchased tons and tons of predictive data. So predictive data is basically there are companies that will provide you with tons of data on someone who's likely to sell a property. That could be anyone who files for a divorce to anyone who's, you know, lived in the same home, paying the same 30 year mortgage for 25 years. He's more likely to sell a property than say someone who's only been living in a home for five years and paying a 30 year mortgage for five years. He's more likely to sell. So these companies have hundreds of data points, hundreds. So we'll buy these lists. Um, I'll get sent to me every quarter, um, anywhere from 50 to hundred thousand leads per county that I work in. So right now we're working the entire Long Island. We're in upstate New York. We're in several counties in New Jersey. We're in Florida, Texas, Arizona. Oh, wow. We're expanding. Um, I was telling Brian a little earlier prior to the show, I am looking to get into Colorado as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut. The sky's the limit. I want to be all 50 states. Um, now, are you primarily um, like smaller single family homes or small multi-units or have you ventured into larger communities? It's primarily one to four family homes. It's and do you reach out to these sellers through direct mail or so through? We found that the best way to do it is, I like using texting the best. Texting and calling, I find to be the most efficient way and the best ROI, return on investment. You have to make sure to do it legally though, and to do it right. And you have to make each state has like their own nuances, mm -hmm. but there are softwares that, you know, literally as you upload everyone's number, there are softwares that will pull away the numbers that you're not allowed to text. So you have to make sure you're doing it the right way, but texting by far is the most potent way to reach someone. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Direct mail. They found and uh, you know, they do studies on this all the time. They found that I think you have to mail someone six times to get a response. So yeah. if you're doing the amount of volume that I want to be doing. That's a lot of mail. Um, it is. You know, and I'm also not at the point yet where I have institutional money backing me yet. When I am at that point, which I hope to be soon, then that could very well become an option. And mm -hmm. I do believe once that is an option, at that point, there'll be no, you know, nothing in my way. But until then, texting is is absolutely fine. It gets the results you need. And uh, phone calls are also also fine. Now, the so the data that you buy, uh, 
that gives you a, a list of prospective sellers who are more likely to be willing to sell than the average homeowner. Does that data include the homeowner's phone number or do you have to go out and try to track that down separately? Absolutely. Good question. So no, the data is only a name and an address. Um, okay. I then have the option of what I want to get from it. So I always get phone numbers. I always get email addresses. So you buy it from the same service. You just pay a little extra for it. No, oh. I have a different company that I use for skip okay. tracing. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Bulk skip tracing we do. Um, and you know, there's, there's several different companies you could use. Everyone has their own, you know, there are several guys in this business and you find that everyone has their own special sauce on my website. I have a little button that says Levi's tools. And I mentioned there, which skip tracing company I like using. And I just found that they're spot on. It's a numbers game. Everything in this business is a numbers game. No pun intended, but you get their number, but even how many of those numbers are going to be correct is a numbers game. So for every sure. you know hundred numbers you get, there's a percentage of them that are going to be off, percentage of them that are going to be correct. But we always pull cell phone numbers, email addresses, and we also get absentee landlords. So for example, if I were to own a property in Virginia, but I live here in Long Island, I want to make sure to get my address in Long Island because if I do want to send a postcard, I want to mail me in Long Island. I don't want to mail right. my tenants in Virginia. Right. Right. So we also get that information. The more information you skip trace, the more expensive the skip trace is. Mm. But I will tell you the biggest waste of money is cheap skip tracing that you don't spend a lot of money on. Because then you're wasting time. And it's just throwing money, you know, in the toilet. You might as well flush money down the toilet. And then, you know, while we're on that subject, bad marketing. One of the things I've learned about in this business is about throwing good money after bad money. And I've learned that from me specifically has been through PPC, pay-per-click advertising. I spent several hundreds of thousands of dollars on PPC, but between let's say around $300,000 in a few years, not in one year, but in a few years, okay. It wasn't working. It was not working. And I kept going and I kept going. I couldn't stop. Why couldn't I stop? Because I already spent so much money. I already spent right, cost fallacy. Yeah, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop because I already spent, you know, I just spent $75,000. I just need one leader. It's almost like, like gambling. It was almost right. like, wow. You don't throw good money after bad money. You need to stop at certain points. You need to have a limit to when you stop because that new money coming in, that's good money. That could be used on new lists. That could be used on new text messaging that could be used on something that might work. That could be used on a new revenue stream. For me at this time, PPC was bad money at this time, for whatever reason, it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Right. It was tried and it was not true. I had to stop. And I think one of the, a big lesson I could, I could, I learned from that was don't throw good money after bad money. And I think all said and done, I don't think I came out. I think I probably came out with a loss on PPC, not a huge loss. Cause I ended up closing some deals, but it's something that I definitely learned in the long run was again, that, that don't throw good money after bad money, Levi. So right. that's something that, yeah. Now, when you buy this data, uh, for, of 
likely sellers. What, what kind of costs do you incur? I mean, for, for an investor out there who's thinking about modeling this strategy, going out and you know, buying this sort of data, what kind of costs can they expect? On the data end? Yeah, for both the initial homeowner data and then also you know, the, the skip tracing data, the contact data for yeah, um, sure. you know, phone numbers, emails, all that. So there are different lists. I mean, we have some list providers that could charge upwards of $30,000 a list annually per county. There are some list providers that you could pull for a hundred bucks. So many different levels here, depending on the state you're in, depending on, well, you know, the state you're in applies to two things, the actual physical state you're in and also the state you're in (laughs) and invest there financially your business and a few different things. I wouldn't go spend $30,000 on a list unless you have a system in place. When I say systems in place, you need to have the ability to take that list and fully, you know, get it done. Again, that's throwing really good money in the garbage. Um, I have to ask, I mean, you have all these systems now in place and whatnot, but you, I mean, and obviously you have, to make some mistakes to get to where you are. But uh, how, like the whole list building and using these companies, what led you to that? I followed people. I, I you know, people are so anti, it's unreal. The amount of, of people and, and cynicism you get on people saying, uh-huh, a mentor, uh, uh, I, should, I, should, I should work with someone or I should hire a coach or, and uh, you know you see a lot of that for every person who actually signs up you know how much cynicism there's out there what do people pay for college to go get a worthless degree well i'm not god forbid you know if it's if it's someone a passion and you go get it and you go to school and make a living for it then god bless but what if someone go to college pays Fifty, hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. and then doesn't use it and someone goes and then makes fun of someone who pays ten thousand dollars to someone who learns how to use a system learns how to use a crm learns how to borrow money learns how to talk the talk learns how to walk the walk and he learns how to start a business and someone goes why should i pay you any amount of money for your time to talk to me and learn how to run a business what do you know you know how often we hear that mm-hmm. we hear that I can't even tell you how many times. And it's not that I got a coach. I speak to people. That's awesome. I, I was one of those guys who, after I flipped my first deal, sent a picture of my check so I would get my $1,000 back for signing up for a course. I did that. Oh, okay. People think, oh, no one does that. I did it. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I learned how to do it because I actually took the courses and I applied what I learned and did it. Yeah, education is expensive, you know, whether you're talking time, money, you know, usually both. Learning from mistakes. Learning from mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, I've made many, many expensive real estate mistakes over the years and lost many tens of thousands of dollars, but I kept at it so that that money it wasn't really losses it was the cost of tuition right it was the cost of education uh to learn how to go out and do better next time so 100 percent. 
uh, and, and again, just to reiterate what I said before, no degree is worthless. I just, it's important that we all just come full circle here and understand that obviously if someone goes through schooling and appreciates what they do, then no amount of money could be put on that. And, right. and everyone should, you know, go after their passions, of course. I'm just saying that you have people who spend a lot of money on coaching in this business and it works. If you find the right person to do it with, it works. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Levi, where can people connect with you now? Where, where can they connect with you in Stable Holdings? Well, you can always go on my website, click any of the links there, you'll get in touch with us. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, stableholdings.com. I'm all over the place. My videos are online. If you want to reach me, you can reach me. I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm all over the place. Not a hard guy to reach. <laughs> well, Levi, we want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was, it was a great conversation. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you soon. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Time, thank you. God bless. All right, guys. See have you. a great week. We'll catch yeah. you next Tuesday. You Bye, -bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. Did you know we offer a free eight video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long, but packed with information. Visit sparkrental.com learn for instant access. And please don't forget to rate and review our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. And we will catch you on the flip side.